You know, there's a certain poignancy about this crusade to me because Billy Graham is very close to the end of his ministry. And I think there is a crusade scheduled in Charlotte this fall, which would be the last of his crusades in these some 50 years now that he's been preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so to have him come to Minneapolis in June, near the end of his, his public crusade ministry, is a great privilege for us. And I hope that you will understand it in that way, as well as a wonderful opportunity to serve the Lord. And uh, there is no registration necessary for the class you just heard about. All you need to do is come. We're expecting that our auditorium will be filled and then some, uh, because we're one of 22 locations throughout the region uh, having the class during those weeks in April and May. I hope that you'll plan to go to one of them if you don't want to come to this one because of a conflict. Go to another one and allow yourself to be equipped in uh, the Christian life as well as in how to witness to your friends. Well, now would you open your Bible with me, please, to Colossians chapter 3, where we take up our study beginning with verse 12. You can follow along in your copy of the Bible as, as I read the Word of God. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. <clears throat> well, the fairy tale has now become a nightmare. The sordid details of the marriage of Prince Charles and Princess Diana have embarrassed the British monarchy and potentially undermined it for the future. But nonetheless, who of us can forget the pageantry and the pomp 15 years ago when they were wed? The videos of that occasion, even the photos still today, evoke a sense of wonder and a stirring of our imagination. As we think to ourselves, what would it be like to be part of an occasion like that? Well, if you're a child of God, if you're a Christian, you need to give some thought to that. And the reason is very simple, because Jesus Christ is preparing his bride, of which you're a part, for a wedding. And that wedding in heaven is going to make the one in England 15 years ago look like a cheap Las Vegas quickie. And you are going to be a part of it by the grace of God. The Apostle Paul speaks to the bride of Jesus Christ and he describes us as believers with three wonderful words. He says, I write to those who have been chosen of God. The word chosen means to select from among many. It does not necessarily imply the rejection of those not chosen, but rather the election of those that was God's good pleasure to choose. In Ephesians 1, 4, it says, 
God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In Titus 1.1, Paul says he is writing for the faith of those chosen of God. This is one of the themes of Scripture that relates to you and to me as believers in Jesus Christ. That before the world began, God looked into the future of what was going to happen. The ages that he prepared and he chose those whom he would redeem. Now, I know that that raises questions in our minds. We don't fully understand all, the, all the, the balance that is there between the human responsibility to believe, which is certainly true, and the truth that God has chosen. But put the, the, the debate out of your mind for a moment and just sit back and realize that out of no reason other than His sovereign grace, before God spoke the world into existence, before it actually came into being, He knew you. He knew you, and He chose you to be a part of this very special group that is called the Bride of Christ, that He's preparing now for the wedding that is coming up. There's a second word that is used of the bride, and that is holy. Chosen of God and holy. The word holy simply means to set apart. It is a word used back in verse 2 of chapter 1 when he called us saints. Same root word. Those who have been set apart by God. So God not only chose us, but then in time... He set us apart for His divine purpose. We are holy in that sense. And then he uses a third word. And you would expect this to be a word. When there's a marriage involved, he says, you are beloved. You are the objects of God's love. But God demonstrates his love toward us, says Paul in Romans. God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the basis of God's election. It is the reason that he sets us apart, because he loves us. And so if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are a, a Christian in the sense of being born again into the family of God, you are today one who is part of a special group, the bride who will be married to Christ. Our text is addressed to the bride who needs to get dressed for the wedding. That's no small feat. Now, most grooms are not aware of that. Because grooms come tootling into the church 15 minutes before the pictures are supposed to be taken. He gets into his outfit, whatever it is, and he's ready. But my friend, the bride is here hours before the wedding. Hours before the wedding. So that she can get her hair done and her nails just have to be right. 
And then she begins to put on the layers of this wedding dress that has been purchased so that she's ready when the time comes. And what the apostle says to you and to me is that we need to get dressed. It's time for us to put on the royal raiment, the glorious garb for those who will now be wed to the Son of God. When he says to us that we are to put these things on in verse 12, he uses an expression there that means take this action urgently. Understand it's something that needs to be done and needs to be done now. Don't put it off. Put on, he says, these things. Now, we already are a new person, a new self in Jesus Christ, as we saw last week. So we're not going to put these things on so that we can become a Christian. No, no. He says, you are a new person. You are a Christian. Now, because you are, put on these things. And so he gives us seven pieces to the royal attire. Seven pieces to this garment that God wants us to wear, this outfit that will be well-pleasing to Christ on that day that we are wed to him. The first garment is called a heart of compassion. The word heart in the Greek language refers to the internal organs, to the lungs, the heart, the kidneys, the intestines. That's because the, the, the Greeks understood emotion as coming from right here, a visceral reaction. And so they used this word to refer to that emotion the ability to feel when you hear shocking news, it hits you right there. You, you tense up inside. And so they write about the heart. And Paul uses this term, the heart of compassion. The first piece that we're to put on is the ability to feel pity and sympathy for the weak and the suffering. The Lord says if we're going to dress for his wedding, we need to first put on this garment of having tender feelings. You know, in a culture like ours, it's easy to allow our hearts to become hardened. Not only are we overwhelmed with, with the media and the violence that we see, but we see so much suffering brought right into our living rooms that after a while we get compassion fatigue. And we see these sights that 20 years ago would have caused us to weep and now we eat our meals and glance at them as we are eating without much feeling about it. We need to allow our hearts to remain soft and tender. James 5.11 says that God is full of compassion and merciful. God is a God who has tender feelings for those who are hurting. And of the Lord Jesus, it says that as he viewed the multitudes, 
He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. As we look at a video like we did a few moments ago and we see the, the crowds in the city streets or the crowds sitting there in the stadium of a Billy Graham crusade, is there any sense of compassion for these people? as you ponder those that you work with or go to school with, is there within you a tenderness that cares for their hurts? As Ron Hutchcraft said in that video, the very things our culture has sought after and found so empty have prepared them to hear the gospel. People are hurting. They're desperate. And yes, they're going to the wrong place to find the answers. But even in doing that, they're further prepared for the truth when they finally hear it. So let's not just turn them off and say, oh, they're, they're beyond hope. But let's put on the garment of compassion and have a tenderness about us and allow ourselves to feel the pain of others, to get emotionally involved with them. Yes, there's risk in that. Some of us have been so hurt in the past by reaching out to help the hurting. We've been so hurt ourselves that we don't want to risk being hurt again. I'm glad our God doesn't respond that way, aren't you? Because so many times he would not have responded to me. And yet he's always been full of compassion. And so must we. Put on, he says, a heart of compassion that feels with others the distress of their lives. And then he says, put on, secondly, kindness. Put on kindness. The word here means a friendly, helpful attitude that seeks to meet the practical needs of others. It's just plain old-fashioned goodness. It is used in Romans 11.22 in tandem with severity and the opposite of that. It speaks of the goodness and the severity of God. He says here that we are to be filled with goodness, with kindness. Spirozodiati says, it is the grace which pervades the whole nature, mellowing all which would have been harsh and austere. You know, as we get older, it's easier to become harsh and critical and judgmental. What he says is that as we're growing older, we need to keep putting on this garment of kindness that mellows us out, that doesn't allow us to become bitter with the passing years, but we remain kind and good. It is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance, Romans 2, 4, this very word. It is God's kindness. And the Lord Jesus illustrated what kindness is all about in that parable of the Good Samaritan, didn't he? 
and this poor man who had been beaten and left for dead and others passed by, but this Samaritan came by and this man who had experienced rejection himself by the very people that this man belonged to and the very people who had passed him by, this Samaritan, this, this half-breed, stops and cares for him and takes him to an inn and pays for his staying there for days. Kindness. Jesus told that story in response to the question, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus had said, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, I'll tell you about a neighbor. You and I need to be neighbors. And show kindness to those to those who may have hurt us, to those who may least deserve it, we're to show kindness, put on kindness as a member of the bride of Christ. Thirdly, he says, put on humility. Alistair Begg tells about one college student who satirized the absence of humility in our, our world with a sign on his dorm door that said in bold letters, No, I am not conceited. And then in small letters underneath it, it said, Though I have every reason to be so. <laughs> Humility is the absence of thinking of oneself first. It means to look at oneself in perspective. Humility was not considered positive in the Roman world when Paul lived. To them, humility was a sign of weakness. And yet the Apostle Paul takes that word and by the Spirit of God puts it down as a jewel of character. Spurgeon said, humility is to make a right estimate of oneself. It doesn't mean that you totally forget who you are, but it means that you allow others first. <coughs> it means that you see yourself in perspective to them. Paul, I'm going to need that water down there. Would you grab that for me, please? Thank you. <coughs> By the way, did you write that skit this morning? Uh, yeah, I thought that last line was a little too personal for you to have written it. Humility. Wonderful example of it right there. <clears throat> he would not take credit for that last line. To be humble means to lay aside your personal rights. The Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest example there is of humility. He laid aside his rights. Humbled himself. And became obedient unto death. <clears throat> you know, I think I'm going to have to have a chorus. My throat's just giving out on me. You got a chorus on humility handy? <clears throat> we are called not to feel humble, but to be humble. And right now, I not only feel it, I am. Why don't we well, sing? I have a chorus for you. We bow down and worship <coughs> the Lord. Why don't you stand? We can sing together as you stand. Sing together. 
You are Lord of creation and Lord of my life, Lord of the land and the sea. You are Lord of the heavens before there was time, and Lord of all, Lord, you will be. We bow down and we worship you, Lord, we bow down. And we worship you, Lord, we bow down. And we worship you, Lord, Lord of all. You are Lord of creation and Lord of my life, Lord of the land and the sea. You are Lord of creation. We bow down and we worship you, Lord, we bow down and we worship you. We bow down and we worship you, Lord. Lord of all, Lord, you will be. We'll have you be seated for just a moment. We'll sing, uh, I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. And I lift my voice to of water. I could do it, but I'm busy right now. Thank you. All right. Well, I think I'm going to leave humility. I think I should be done with that by now. And we will go on to talk about gentleness. Put on gentleness. <clears throat> gentleness springs from great strength within. This word gentle is sometimes translated meekness. One who is meek is one who is submissive. It is gentleness that springs from power that is under control. The picture of it is that of a rushing, powerful river that is brought to a dam that holds it back. Thank you. And as that dam holds back that river, it allows some of it to pass through. And in doing that, it passes through turbines that generate electricity. And so you have the power of this mighty river being harnessed <clears throat> and allowed to pass through the dam. And as it does, it produces energy. What gentleness is about is not using the powers of your life yourself and using them randomly using them to advance your own agenda the one who is gentle is one who causes that power to be under control 
so that it doesn't damage, it doesn't hurt others, but it's released for their benefit. It brings healing. It brings empowerment. It brings encouragement. That's gentleness. And the Bible says that if we're going to be the bride of Christ and be ready for our wedding, we need to put on gentleness. The Lord Jesus was gentle. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am what? What did he say? I am meek. I am gentle and humble in heart. The Apostle Paul said, as he wrote to the Corinthians, I beseech you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. How much difference would it make in your marriage if you put on gentleness? In the way that you respond to your wife or to your husband? Instead of pushing for your way and wanting what you want when you want it, to put that power under control and minister to that one that you love <clears throat> with gentleness and for his or her encouragement. Put on gentleness. And then he says, put on patience. Put on patience. One writer tells about the prayer of the modern American, Dear God, I pray for patience, and I want it now. <clears throat> Do you ever feel that way? Patience. The word here means long-suffering. It's a long-holding out of the mind before acting. It's the opposite of resentment and revenge. It is self-restraint that enables one to bear insults and injury. George Sweeting, in his book, Catch the Spirit of Love, <clears throat> tells about a little boy who was riding with his father. And uh, as he, they were driving along, this man became irritated with other drivers. This is not a story about me. This is a story about somebody else. <laughs> George Sweeting tells this story. He fussed and he fumed and he bellowed and he shouted at all the other drivers as they went through town. And finally they arrived at home. Later that day, the boy went out to with his mother to the car and they went for a drive and as they drove peacefully along the boy said mom where are all the idiots <laughs> she said idiots he says yes when i was out driving with dad this morning we saw seven of them <laughs> that hits too close to home doesn't it But you and I are to put on patience, patience, suffering long with others. Of God, it says in 2 Peter 3.15, regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. What does that mean? It means that our Lord, in delaying the coming, the second coming of Jesus Christ, has a purpose, and in his patience, he is saving people. As it says earlier in that chapter, the Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, 
not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Put on patience. What would that mean in your life if today you decided to, to put on patience? How would your life look different tomorrow? How would you be dressed differently? If we're going to be ready for the wedding, we've got to put it on and do it now. And then he says, number six, bearing with one another. This is the next garment. <clears throat> bearing with one another. To bear with means to endure or to hold up against something. It means to be tolerant toward what is irritating and what is chafing. Oh, we need a lot of these clothes, don't we? And all of us need to put them on because others do irritate us. Even other Christians. Did you ever know that? Other Christians can be irritating. And so he says we're to bear with one another. I heard Vernon McGee give the little piece of uh, poetry years ago that said, To dwell above with the saints I love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints I know, that's another story. <laughs> we need to bear with one another down below here and put on this attitude of forbearance of others. To the saints in Thessalonica, <clears throat> the apostle wrote, We ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Some of you put up with some difficult situations at work because of your faith, because of the standards, the ethics that you have. And there's pressure against you because of it. What it says here is every day when you get up and get ready to go to work, make sure you've put on forbearance so that you can bear up against that pressure. And he says, number six, forgiving one another. <clears throat> forgiving. Literally it means to be gracious towards someone who has found fault with us. You notice that? Forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against you. Someone's unhappy, someone's dissatisfied. Maybe it's just, maybe it's not. Sometimes complaints are not just. Perhaps you overlooked something you should have done. That's really the force of this word. It's it's a complaint due to an omission more than a commission. Maybe you forgot something. Maybe you failed. And there's a complaint against you. What it says here, forgive those who complain against you. Forgive each other. You know, marriages would be transformed if only we would put on this garment of forgiving our spouse. For in that closest of all human relationships, in the dearest of them all, there are frequent occasions of complaints. Churches would be transformed. 
I've heard more complaints in the last six months than I've ever heard in 25 years of ministry. I think it's symptomatic of our culture and our age. Forgive one another. Don't hold the complaints up to divide, but forgive. <clears throat> Phillips Brooks, who preached in the last century, said, You who are letting misunderstandings run on from year to year, meaning to clear them up someday, you who are passing men sullenly in the street, not speaking to them because of some silly spite, and yet knowing that you would be ashamed if you heard one of these men had died, if you could suddenly realize that the time is short, how it would break that spell. How you would go instantly and do the thing you might never have, have a chance to do. His point is that we only have today to ask forgiveness and to forgive. Let's do it. And not hold grudges against one another. And then he says, once you put on all these layers of garment, there is a sash that goes on, and it's called love. It binds all the others together. Love is the beauty of the believer, dispelling the ugly sins of the flesh that destroy unity, writes John MacArthur. The Apostle Paul says, and of faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. That love that seeks the welfare of another, though they may be undeserving. Four of these eight qualities that he mentions here are called the fruit of the Spirit. <clears throat> In Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And I think what he's, he's saying here is that this is not something that we do in our own strength, but he's saying that you and I must decide that this is how we're going to live and then trust the Holy Spirit to enable us to do it. And so today what I want to urge you to do is to understand you're headed toward a wedding if you're a Christian. And the Lord has laid out your clothes. It's time to put the clothes on. Last week we talked about what to take off. Today we're talking about what to put on. And tie them all together with love. So that when the bridegroom comes and we hear his shout and we're called up to be with him, we won't be ashamed. Have you ever had a dream like this one that I've had a number of times? You were supposed to be someplace and it was someplace very fancy and you show up and you're not dressed for it. Have you ever had that dream? Everybody else is dressed the way they're supposed to dress and here you are completely not fit for it. I don't want to end up at the wedding in heaven like that, do you? So let's get our clothes on. Now, today, while we have time. And be prepared to march down that aisle when Jesus comes. Let's pray. With our heads bowed, I wonder if there are some pieces of clothing that you need to get on this morning that you're undressed would you in the quietness of this closing moment say Lord Jesus thank you for loving me thank you for choosing me thank you for setting me apart for yourself 
thank you for the wedding I'm going to. Lord, I need to get dressed. Lord, I want to put on these qualities. Will you tell them that? And ask the Holy Spirit to make it real in your life. Lord Jesus, our heavenly bridegroom, we stand before you today, all of us, in various states of undress. Because I don't think there's any of us here who are fully ready for the wedding. And we don't want to be embarrassed on that day. <clears throat> so Lord, right now we, we say to you that we're, we're going to get dressed. We're going to put on our royal garments by your Holy Spirit. Enable us. Because in ourselves we'll surely revert to the flesh. We'll go back to what we have been in the past before we knew you. So we give ourselves to you to, to put on these clothes that will cause you to smile when you see us at the altar. Let's stand together. And let's sing again that love chorus to Jesus. <laughs>